Greetings, my friend, and welcome to Beyond Curious, conversations with brave adventurers like yourself that are taking voyages into the unknown to satisfy their curiosity, fulfill their purpose, and bring their ideas to life. I'm Brandon Fong, and I so appreciate you for being here, and I'm beyond excited to introduce you to today's guest, Christina Harridge. Frustration is often a sign of innate talent. When we are frustrated as humans, it's because something comes easy to us that's harder for other people. And when we numb that frustration, we're also numbing our talent. Oh my gosh, there is so much I want to tell you about Christina. But before I get to her bio, there's three specific things I want you to look out for in today's episode. Number one, the story of how Christina got sued for being nice. You heard that correctly. <laughs> You'll The bio will clarify that in a little bit, but that actually legit happened. Number two, I want you to look out for what being a NASA test subject taught Christina about communication. And number three, listen in on her point on how you can turn frustration into genius and uncovering your unique strengths in the world. So if you're listening to this and you don't know Christina, who is Christina and what is she all about? Christina Harbridge is a behaviorist who trains and coaches individuals, teams, and large groups to understand and leverage their own personal operating system when dealing with others who may or may not be rational. Christina's early experience as founder and CEO of a debt collection agency that collected debt through unorthodox tactics, such as being nice, shaped her worldview on workplace communication. Employees focused their interactions on feeling a person's need to feel understood through emotionally literate tactics rather than trying to focus on collecting a debt that may not have even been owed. This values-based tactic reinforced by bonuses paid on thank you notes received reinvigorated the industry by resulting in collections three times higher than the industry average. The proof was in the wedding invitations. <laughs> Christina has co-authored software, built and sold a successful finance industry company, practiced aerobatic swing dancing, participated as a NASA test subject, and collaborated to design and weld several large-scale metal sculptures. She has served her community on the founding boards of the Bay Lights and Emerge America, and her story is covered in more detail in Simon Sinek's book, Start With Why, and Mike Maddox's Plan D, and Maria Ross's Empathy Edge. And she is the author of Suede, How to Communicate for Impact, which reached number one on Amazon's conflict category list. And if you want to listen to one of those people that was mentioned in her bio there, Mike Maddox, he was actually the person that introduced Christina and myself. So I'm super grateful for you, Mike. And you, you just had an incredible episode on our show if you happen to be listening to this. And I'm so grateful for you, not only for your content, but also for introducing me to Christina because she is an amazing human. And for you listening, I'm super excited to dive into this because not only is Christina an incredible human being, if you can't tell, she's had a diverse and really incredible range of experience as a founder. Like who's learning communication from debt collection agencies and disrupting the industry by being nice and getting invited to weddings. It's, it's just super, super cool. And she's the absolute perfect guest for Beyond Curious because she truly is the definition of being beyond curious. There's so much to dive into to learn how to be a more effective communicator and really how to change your perspective on communication with other people that are important in your life. So with all that said, I'm super excited for you to listen in on this incredible interview with my friend, Christina Harbridge. Christina, welcome to the show. So excited to have you here. As I was just saying beforehand, I was listening to some of the incredible content you've created and you you amplified my run that I had over the past weekend. So I'm really grateful to have you and to dive into your incredible story and all your content. So super excited. <laughs> I just want to hear more about this race that you're doing, Brandon. That it sounds <laughs> really hard. It is hard. I'm getting more and more nervous as time goes on, but um, I'll give you an update as progresses because we got to, at least at the time of this recording, maybe by the time it comes out, I'll have finished it, but we got about a month from today. But let's, oh, wow. 
<laughs> yeah, it'll it'll I'll, I'll send you an update. But but I would love to dive into your story, this incredible entrepreneurial journey that you've been on. And the story that I would love to start with actually doesn't have anything to do with uh, your businesses. It has to do with you as a person. So I found this as as I was listening to another podcast. I'm like, this is such a cute story. So you were on the way to be a daffodil in a school play, <laughs> and something happened that kind of changed the way that you viewed your life. I would love for you to share what that was and what that story was. Yeah, I was four or five years old, um, and I was a special ed student, Brandon. I couldn't talk. I had a stutter mm -hmm. and a stammer, which I still have. And everything the well-intended adults did to help me talk made it worse. And so someone had this great idea, profound idea, to put me as a daffodil in a school play with a speaking part. And so I'm on my way there. And I got to, I got to ask my family, what I think it was a Plymouth Fury. I'm in this big car, no seatbelts, sitting on the baseboards, about to vomit, panicking, freaked out. And my Aunt Rosemary had on these white go-go boots. It was the 70s with turquoise um, leather behind cutout shapes. And I was looking at the shapes and realized a couple minutes in, kid time, that I wasn't nervous anymore. And it was, I, and I, I tear up when I tell this story, Brandon, because it changed my life. From that moment on, people always ask me, how did you become a behaviorist? on the way to be a daffodil in a school play. Because from that moment on, I learned that if I got out of my head, if I felt anxiety, nervousness, when I started to stutter, if I would just get out of my head and look for something I liked in nuance and in detail, I could, uh, my, my, uh, you hear me stutter today. And so when I start to stutter, I just look at, I love how you nod when I talk. I love that your microphone looks like a little plate that I want to put a piece of candy on. So my brain, when I start, when my physiology starts messing with me, I just get out of my head. And what that did is I, stu I study people. I have so much data about humans because I see them all the time. So yeah, that it, it, I, I don't know how I got that memory back after decades, but it is it's how it all started. It's so cool to fast forward to today. Cause like you're literally just leveraging that innate skill set that you had to shift focus away from worrying about yourself to like something yeah. external and then like leveraging your observations to create magic in the world. And so I love that. And I think the, the rest of today, all of our friends hanging out with us, will find out how that's manifested in many ways of your life. <laughs> so so let's maybe share, a, we'll, we'll jump forward into your debt collection agency business, which and they've heard from your bio, probably, or I've introduced it at this point. Like, this has been a story that's been in Start With Why. Also, huge shout out to our mutual friend, Mike Maddock, who is not only responsible for connecting to us, but I also read your story in his book, uh, Plan D, which was awesome. But I want to talk a little bit about how this manifested into your world. So I grabbed this chunk from actually page 189 of Start With Why. Um, and this says, in the fall of her freshman year in college, Christina... Harbridge set out to find a part-time job. Intrigued by the prospect of working in the antiques business, she answered a newspaper ad in Sacramento to do work for a collector. <laughs> so it wasn't what you thought it was. So I'd love for you Not to long. share what happened as a result of that, what that experience was. <laughs> yeah, it. I, you know, my, my dad was sick. Um, I, you know, I needed to care for him. I was also in college and I needed to make money and they paid more than minimum wage. And so I'll, I ne I'll never forget like walking in there to the nicest people I'd ever met in my life in the break room, like just felt like I had stumbled upon just an incredible place. It was my first like job that wasn't fast food um, and or insurance. I did work for insurance for a while doing cold calls. That was fun. Um, and then I walked out on the in the room and just heard of these really kind people being vicious and evil and mean, like demeaning and mean. And I was standing there and I remember my hands were shaking. I remember what I was wearing and I thought somebody needs to do that. We need to, we need to do this another way. We need to collect debt by being nice. Why are all these, why are we doing this? And I, I thought of the idea of starting a debt collection agency that collected debt by being nice. My very first day, my very first moment standing at the file cabinets. And then I couldn't let it go. Just stayed in my head that I couldn't let it go. There's an, these, you know, everyone here is so kind and they're being asked to be different. 
And it's, I, you know, I watch people for a living and I saw the bracing and the weird and yeah. So I had no idea that a huge part of being a founder is all the mistakes you make. So I decided to start a company that day, but I didn't actually do it for a few years. Took Mm -hmm. me a while to have the courage to do it. I could just imagine you walking in your first time job, you're excited, you're meeting people and it's like you see one version of them and then they step in and they're on the phone and like all of a sudden they just become a different human and you're like, whoa, what the, what the heck happened? Um, and like you having the observation skill sets that you had, it's no surprise that that was like something needs to change. Like, right. This is not how humans are designed to be treated. That's, that's really cool. So, so let's kind of keep going then. So you had that idea from day one, as you just said, and then eventually you started off um, years later, actually bringing this dream to life. So maybe talk a little bit more around your theory about collecting debt and being nice, because it's almost like you almost hear that. And it's like, really, can you actually do that? Like, and I'm sure you you yeah. probably got that reaction all the time, but share a little bit about that theory and, and how it manifested. So I just want to say this up front, you know, people would, people often ask me about this and they act like I had some brilliant design. It was all kind of luck. Like, I didn't really have a theory going in. Mm-hmm. I was, you know, raised by a father who was um, a civil rights worker, really focused on social justice. And his best friend, my godfather, had told him he needed to infiltrate the systems he wanted to change. So I was raised by these two men really showing me that all these institutions, everything in our world that we don't like, there's, we can protest things, which is a valuable thing to do, but we can also infiltrate them. And so I think I was really driven by this idea that this thing exists and there's good people in this thing doing things that aren't working for anybody. I'm, I just, it was my dad, it was my being raised that way. I just, I was almost defiant that I was going to, I had hubris too, because I was 22, but I all, you know, I didn't know what I didn't know, but I, didn't have a theory. I didn't think that we would collect more. I didn't think it would be more effective. I felt like if all those calls were positive, it would be better for the world. It would mean that people were kinder to their children and kinder to each other. It wasn't a business strategy yet. That all came later. So I just want to say that up front because I wasn't like some brilliant, I didn't know. I just, and so when, um, and stop me if I go on too long. There's so many layers to this. I was a chemistry major and I couldn't hack the labs. So the I felt like everybody was having meetings without me when I went to school. I went to night school. So I changed to an economics major. And night school, incredible professors like that are working during the day and teaching for the love of it. And they opened my eyes to how irrational humans are. Mm-hmm. And I think that one professor um, told us all to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. There's one moment in the education. I want to honor him. Taught, had everybody make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And when everyone bit into it, the jelly was coming out the other side. And he said, that happens every single time because you're totally irrational. And he showed us how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich where you take the peanut butter and the jelly and you stir it so that it doesn't come out the other side. Mm. And I'm telling you, Brandon, <laughs> brilliant. <laughs> sitting there, like sitting there, my I I just was like, wait, that, and I think that was the moment where I'm like, I can do that. Like everyone's just doing the same thing. It really, and I talked to my dad about it. And he's like, people are gonna really hate you for what you do for a living. You're gonna have to introduce yourself as a bill collector. You got to do it. You have to do it. This mm. is the most hated industry there was, and so. I did it. I mean, I really didn't know. I mean, I I was I was blessed with people who worked in the company that were as passionate as I was about doing it another way. I I, I didn't do it alone. There's a lot of team members that just made it happen. So let's go into like the early days. So here you have this idea. You just 
saw your professor blow your mind by mixing peanut butter and jelly yeah. together and say, hell yeah, I can do, I can mix my own version of peanut butter and That's- jelly together. And I'm going to disrupt an industry by being nice to people while trying to collect debt. Like, so yep. you, you, you kind of get started. What were those kind of like, if you didn't have a theory and you're like, this is just the way the world needs to be. At what point did you realize, holy shit, there's something here. Like, like we're actually collecting more money as a result of it. And then obviously if it hadn't worked, you probably would have stopped, but there was probably some early indication that like, this is, there's actually something here beyond your just idea of trying to uh, just get started with something. Yeah. I knew that I had to, you know, my father had Parkinson's disease. So part of the driver was I had to pay for him. Like it Mm -hmm. was very expensive um, care facilities. And so I had this, I had to figure out a way to not make minimum wage. So that, that layer was in there too. And then I was going to a bunch of Grateful Dead shows. Like we would fly everywhere, drive everywhere, go in and if you've met, you know, Grateful Dead shows, you can leave your bag wherever you want and it'll be there when you get there. And everybody's, you know, it's just the whole culture is amazing. And so one of my friends that did that with me came to work with me. So we had this whole like vibe that we, and we would hire, um, you know, people that had that vibe. So we hired mm. for this like collective vibe. And so we noticed pretty early on that we were bonusing on money collected, which is the opposite of what we should be bonusing on. We should be bonusing on thank you cards received. And we started realizing that all, just like that peanut butter and jelly thing, there's all these habits and systems in business that are driving behavior away from what people really want. And it was in our own institution. And so I think it was probably a year. I don't know. I can't time is so weird because it was so long ago. One of the people I worked with said, I think we're collecting more this way. I worked at another collection agency and I just looked at our client inventory and I think we're actually collecting more money. And I was like, oh, what? well, what's the industry average? Like I didn't, you know, I was like, what? It, and the industry average was 9.9 and we were doing 32.2. Holy crap. And that's real. What I just said is real because we kept, you know, numbers on everything. The the difference, though, if you look at it from an economic perspective, the average call time to yell and scream at somebody is two minutes. The average call time to build rapport is about six and a half. So our expenses were, you know, collecting this way caused more expenses. So Mm. I think that's why people in the industry were like call time two minutes, but they were collecting less because only so many people would respond to that kind of confrontation. Mm. Did I answer your question? There's so many layers. No, okay. <laughs> I, let's keep let's keep unpacking the layers because I don't want to skip on that. And I, I I love how you started in the beginning. You're like, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have some grand no, plan and things kind of started unfolding. And you mentioned bonusing on thank you cards. So like, let's 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 talk a little bit about that, because that must have been another. You said what you're going to bonus on thank you cards kind of reaction. Yeah. So like, w- what was that conversation like when you started talking so- about that instruction that way? <laughs> I don't even know if that the thing that horrifies me about that is a lot of people, Simon Sinek, when I first met him, thought that was so cool. I'm like, I don't even know if that was my idea or somebody I worked with. I think it was one of my team members had that idea. And I cannot remember who it was. And I hope if they ever listen to this, they tell me who they were. Because I think what happened is we I started doing training for the team about how to turn a confrontation into a conversation. And I started noticing that some bodies were just better at it physiologically. Some people were just really good at not getting hijacked or thrown off. And I realized, and I almost remember the day that it was, that, Brandon, what's the number one goal of a collection call, a debt collection call? To get the money. That was the problem right there. I started asking everyone, and they're like, to get the money. I'm like, that's the problem. The goal is to establish enough relationship and rapport that the person tells you what's going on. Then you can help them because if they don't owe it, we can help them dispute it. So I just realized there was a fundamental mismatch in what everyone was doing compared to what they needed to be on the call. If you're optimizing for money, you're just going to be weird, Brandon, or you're going to be fake with me. And then it's transactional. And then you're not doing what we are trying to do, which is build rapport. 
And so then we changed the, but we realized the bonus structure was bonusing on a goal that wasn't, that wasn't the goal. The goal was to get the person to tell us what was going on so we could help them. And, And sometimes our help was, you don't know this, don't pay it. And so we had a barrier, um, a behavioral barrier, and I didn't have the language for that then, that was driving our behavior on the calls. And then we had a system that was rewarding the wrong behavior. So when we changed it to thank you cards, it was a game changer. And you couldn't ask for them. And then we started getting invited to weddings. (laughs) And then we had a toy box up front because people would bring their kid in to meet their bill collector. Wow. Because we were giving people a feeling they weren't getting anywhere else, which is, I want to hear your story. Tell me more. How so? What's going on? And so I, you know, it, it, it was a series of iterations, though. It wasn't like going in with, this is what we're going to do. It was all iterative. And it was from watching what I liked. It was watching the people who were good at it and unpacking why they were so good at it. Yeah. There's so much to that too, because there's like the fine line of like seeing data and getting customer feedback, right? Or like like what you yeah. asked me when you asked me that question, and like if everybody's saying the the goal is to collect the money, it took it took that you know tapping to that inner genius of of you kind of shifting the perspective outwards, you know, to say you know what maybe that isn't the correct assumption. And I think that's just like a huge permission slip for anyone listening right now. It's like you know. You, you obviously have to listen to the data, but there's a point in which you have to realize when there's misalignment with the actual intended outcome and questioning the fact that the intended outcome was different than what everybody else said it was, which is like really cool and really bold that you had that nuance there. It's the PBJ, you yeah. know, that and it's also getting out of my head and watching the innate talent. You know, I I think of I have people in my mind right now, and I don't want to say their name to protect their privacy. That's you know more than seventy percent of the calls are people screaming because money freaks people out, and they could just they didn't brace or control or get they they did this honored the humanity of the human in front of them, and I used to use the word empathy, but now I worry that empathy is being deployed as a strategy rather than a feeling like they would feel empathy with that person um and it it was watching them and asking them questions and getting that nuance that made all this kind of come alive because you could see it when we're not in our head we can see it yeah oh man okay so i'm going to i'm going to plant a seed but not go here cuz i want to revisit this cuz you've been <laughs> you've been you've been alluding to so much about physiology, right? And I think that that's a huge part of your work today. I know you got another book coming out on this and NASA subject testing. So we'll see if we can fit all that in. But but I want to kind of conclude this chapter on uh, like what you did with Bridgeport. So there was this other crazy thing that I just think that we can't not talk about it. You got sued for being nice. (laughs) Talk to us a little bit about that and what happened with that situation. (laughs) I did. I got sued a multi-million dollar class action lawsuit. And it's been so many years, I might be misquoting it. But what I remember is there was a clause in one of the causes of action that said that we were beguiling least sophisticated debtors into paying when they otherwise wouldn't. So I was like the Delilah of the collection oh industry. And I am so grateful that um, the attorney that helped me, I'm still in touch with this to this day, just full on got behind me, met me, got behind me, really loved what we were doing because he was in the industry and did such a masterful job um, of, and people helped fund it. You know, I had insurance, but not enough. And so a lot of people got around me and helped me fight it. And we won. You can be nice when collecting debt. And to be fair, this consumer rights attorney is used to deceptive practices. Like the collection industry was riddled with deceptive practices. And so I think, you know, the, there was a belief that this was just another deceptive practice, which it wasn't. Um, so yeah, it was, it, it, it did so much for us because people really rallied behind us, especially people we had collected on, um, heard about it and wanted to be witnesses. And it was really a beautiful thing. Not at the time though. I was terrified, terrified. So scary. I'm sure. 
like to me, it's like, I mean, this is the reason why you were quoted and start with why with your story. It's like you have had so many different situations where you've had to go back to ans- asking yourself the question, like, what do we stand for? And like, you know, you could have crumbled in that moment where you're, come on, getting sued for being nice. That's ridiculous. But like, there's, I'm sure going through it was like, one of the worst but best experiences that you've ever had because I'm sure you would never take away that experience for for what it was but the fact that you constantly had to check in with your values like are we are 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 we standing up for the people and providing empathy and creating good in the world and doing all that kind of stuff to get through I'm sure that situation was probably one heck of a roller coaster so it's just so cool that you it seems like across all your decision makings it's always returning back to those fundamental core values and what and what you stand for to kind of get through everything Yeah. And capitalism, you know, it's really easy to get duped by a system that there isn't a win, 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 win for everybody. There really is. There's no us and them, really. I think the, I think as founders, sometimes our decision making is driven because we need empathy ourselves and we're feeling unappreciated and lost and like we have to be tough all the time. And you know, I, I feel like I was really fortunate to be surrounded by people who could think core values when I was being a human mm-hmm. and not, yeah. you know, so it's when we're being attacked, it's so easy to act outside our values. Um, Yeah. So it's the, the team around us is so important that somebody in the room, one person. <laughs> I love that. You so know. let's let's go back to that team then. So yeah. you you had you had mentioned before, and this is where we'll tie it back into the physiology thing because you you were talking about like first of all hiring around those core values, but then you cared about these people so much. I'm sure it was probably hard for you to see these people getting yelled at and not treated nicely, and then you probably yeah. started making these correlations. So earlier you mentioned physiology that some people almost seemed like they were better at being able to handle getting yelled at and transitioning that effectively. And then I'm sure that opened up like a whole bridge into your work with like understanding physiology in terms of uh, managing conflict. And then also other situations in your life of avoiding getting triggered or turning trigger, being triggered into growth opportunities. So I would love for you to share a little bit about kind of this bridge between these worlds of like uh, seeing debt collection agencies and their physiology and how that's kind of translated into the work that you're doing today. I don't know you ask really easy to answer questions. Hmm. <laughs> I to keep it short. Brandon, I love your um, ability to make things that feel complicated not feel complicated. I appreciate hmm. your questions. You're really good at it, my friend. Thank you. So the watching people all the time. My father was doing biofeedback to manage his Parkinson's. So you would hook these electrodes up and then you could hear your heartbeat and try to slow your heartbeat down. And so he was really into this. And, you know, instead of taking 12 LaDopa pills, he was down to three. And so my father really introduced me to this physiology thing, although I didn't have the word for it. And then so I got this machine, this heart coherence machine, and a couple of the people that were really good at this wanted to nerd out with me. So we hooked it up to them while they were doing the calls. And everybody kind of started nerding out. And some bodies just don't brace in conflict. They're, there's a they they don't get the the heart racing, the heat, the they their pressure is clarifying for them. Where for me, pressure was not clarifying for me. And so it just I started really nerding out on we're training people intellectually, we're doing IQ, and then we're doing EQ, which is emotional literacy. But what's there's some this there's physiology driving their behavior. Like, why aren't we? Where is that? And I started really talking to neurobiologists and not psychologists, because I don't think we should practice psychology at work because we're not trained for that. And um, just started physiologist. I just started really nerding out, spending so much of my time being around smart people around this body thing and so, so that where so okay i know from your your bio and talking to you last time you got to be a nasa test subject too mm-hmm. where you got to this is probably like 
a dream come true for you to be able to, if you had, I don't know if this came before or after that. So I guess the question I'm trying to ask is you were a NASA test subject. Did this come after you started studying people or did this kind of lead to this opportunity to start studying yourself with NASA? I wanted, I wanted to be around the smartest people around this and that is NASA. Um, and I, didn't think there was any way, you know, I, I tried to warm my way in a lot. I went to a lot of talks, you know, anytime there was anybody from NASA talking about anything, I would go. And and then I made this joke, you know, someone that I had helped do a TED Talk said he wanted to give me one of my dreams because I'd helped him so much. And he says, what's one of your dreams? I'm like, oh, no, you don't have to give me anything. And he kept like nagging at me. And I said, I want to go to space. And he's like, do, do, do. And got me in the the list, you know, got me on a list to apply. And I applied. I mean, it was so random. I never imagined that they would pick me. Um, So I applied. And then the administrator and I, you know, one of the ways that I deal with my anxiety and nerves is getting other people talking. And so on the the intake, one of the intake calls, I just asked her a bunch of questions because I was curious about her. And she ended up calling me a couple weeks later and saying, can you be here next Wednesday? You are the only person who knows my name, knows what I'm studying. You're flying. And so because of her, because of her I got in the program. Wow. Yeah, I was really, really lucky. That ties into some of your content with your book, Suede, too, of like listening yeah. to people. And uh, so like there's there's so many different rabbit holes we can go on. But let's let's keep with this like physiology for a little bit more too because i think you know we we kind of arrived at this part of the conversation talking about like getting yelled at there's like obviously like extreme versions of your body reacting to your external circumstances and i think that's really interesting but another thing that i've heard you talk about that i thought was so brilliant is kind of more from a societal perspective we have this kind of what you call a just get over it society and that has to do with our emotions and how we process things too i would love for you to share what that is and i think that's really important to this conversation as well Absolutely. Well, when I went to NASA, they hooked us up to these jackets that test all these things in your physiology and they put it up on a screen. And I, my mind was blown that there's all these people in the room and everyone's body is reacting differently. And I knew it, but I, I saw it. And so the way that I've, the, the word for this is afference, which everybody can look up the word afference. That's going to be the name of my book, even though everybody says don't call it that because people don't know the word. We'll buck up, look up the word. Afference means it's, it's what's going on inside of our body, our physiology without us doing it. So you can have mechanical afference. You can change your breathing, but it's like the heat on your side and it's all the stuff that's going to your brain and kind of changing what we think. And so I, started training my team around afferents, how to stay open when the fur is flying in their natural style. And I started realizing by watching people that most of us in our society, at least in this country, were raised to just get over it. So if you're having a feeling that other people don't want to have, get over that feeling. Go to your room, grind it out. And this is created, it's the the PBJ. It's a habit now, whereas humans habitually, we numb feelings that dip our afferents. And a dip in our afferents isn't bad, but how we soothe it can mess with our outcomes. So I started noticing all the ways that the people in my call center would soothe their discomfort, map them all out, and then uh, people started coming to me like you're getting invited to weddings. Will you teach my team to, you know, I started becoming a training company, which was accidental too. And this habit of just get over it is messing with us. And here's why. Frustration is often a sign of innate talent. When we are frustrated as humans, it's because something comes easy to us that's harder for other people. And when we numb that frustration, we're also numbing our talent. And so that has transformed how it transforms how people can collaborate with each other when they understand that frustration isn't something to control, 
it's something to notice sooner and then use in a different way than yelling, screaming, distancing. There's 900 ways we soothe discomfort that mess with our outcomes. So knowing which one is our favorite, we won't do it as much anymore and we'll start communicating. So on those in the call centers where I kind of discovered this, you know, at NASA and the call center, and now I've mapped it all out. So people are less irrational. This is like, it's just, it sounds like a Jedi ninja mind trick that I want to learn. It's like, okay, so, so let's, let's keep going here because like you're saying that the next time we find ourselves anger, angry or frustrated, it's basically like pointing directly towards a skill set that that we have. So like let's say the next time that I experience frustration or how would how would you coach me to like translating that energy of frustration into an insight that might point more towards something that would be uh an effective way of handling it instead of kind of like suppressing that anger. Let me refine what I said so it's a little bit clearer for everyone. Sure. Frustration is often a sign of innate talent. It's mine or yours. So I may be frustrated because your talent in this moment is different than mine. And I'm frustrated with you because what's happening in the moment is outside of my preference, but it's what must happen for us to get to outcomes. So let me say it this way. If an organization is hired well, people should bug the snot out of each other. Mm. Because somebody who is really good at ideation, let's talk about Mike Maddock, really good at ideation, will be annoyed with somebody who's really good at asking seven questions to get in front of poor execution. Those two people will be frustrated by each other, but they're the best partnership. And so one thing that for people to do is to notice sooner when we're frustrated and to celebrate that we noticed it and get curious about it. You know, is there something here for me to teach or am I trying to control and drive when this person's asking questions because they're trying to execute? My preference is, come on, top line, I don't want to do this. But if I let that frustration drive, the meeting after the meeting is going to happen. If you don't, if you say take it offline, which is what a lot of CEOs do, then the meeting after the meeting happens and they're frustrated that the jelly's spilling out of the other side of the bread. Well, dude, let them ask the questions in the meeting. Sit still in your discomfort so that exec better execution can happen. Mm. And then I, let me tweak one other thing I said. When we're hijacked, when we're really thrown off, it's often a values transgression. So it's because someone has done something that is messing with our values. So people in the collection agency who had this value of conviviality would get hijacked when someone would call yelling at them because it was messing with their deepest values. So the more we understand our values, the less thrown off we are by people acting outside of them. So much gold there. I think it's like just a, a good, like the way that I translated that, right, was like like notice sooner and then celebrate. Like, first of all, that's a win that you notice that yes. and then get curious. And, you know, talking about core values and another, like, I think BU and Michael share this core value, but my yeah. number one core value is childlike curiosity. And I believe that curiosity is one of the greatest forces for good in the world. Right. And I love that. Like you can leverage anything as an opportunity to examine hmm, why, hmm, why was I triggered by that? Or what, what was it? And I also love too, another reason why I could tell why you and Mike are so well connected is because I know he does his flourish forums where he intentionally creates groups of people that think differently, right? And like, if you're, if you're around people that think differently than you, then yeah, it's probably going to be triggering because it's not going to be smooth, easy flowing conversation all the time where everybody's agreeing with each other. It's because you have different brains talking about different things. Um, and it's just another good reminder that we need to surround ourselves with people that should be challenging us and learn how to master our soothing mechanisms, I guess, is the kind of way that you would say it, wow. to leverage it as, as growth instead of frustration. Can I use an example that we just Please. did? Yeah. Okay. So here's the deal. So childlike curiosity is a value. It drives your behavior. One of the most common soothing mechanisms of discomfort in our society is broad sweeping statements. Broad sweeping statements. Uh, your generation is entitled. You're, you know, broad sweeping statements. Eh, there's all these broad sweeping statements. So if your 
let's say, for example, Brandon is being somebody's in their soothing mechanism of broad sweeping statements. It will mess with your value and get you not to be curious. You, your behavior will be less curious. Well, that person's just old. They'll be hmm. discounting that happens to that person when it isn't about controlling our afferents. It's being aware how we soothe it. So when someone comes at us with a broad sweeping statement, if we can see that that's not who they are, that's not their character, their physiology is dipped and they're drowning, not waving. That is the time for us to be curious. Uh-oh, what's an example? What do you see? But if they hijack your value, Brandon, you're going to drop yours. You won't ask because you don't want to know. It's like F you and your broad sweeping statement. I don't know if that created more mess or more clarity. No, no, it does. Let's keep going because I yeah. know this This seems like it's kind of moving into your your book about your your context model. So it's like if I'm understanding what I heard correctly, it's like somebody would make like a, a broad sweeping statement in a way that might be misaligned with my values. And it almost can it, like I don't want to be curious because it's like, you know, what the hell? Like, I, like, why, yeah. why would I want to spend more time? Uh, right. But it's like, yeah, if I if I were to leverage my curiosity, I could get more specific and find out that, hey, maybe this person that said, you know, your generation or you always do this, which I would kind of classify as like yeah. another broad sweeping statement might bring it into a realm of like, okay, this is manageable instead of you just kind of discounting everything and everything under the sun. <laughs> right. So yeah, is that, yeah. Is that like yeah. And what's hardest on us as the individuals is when we act outside of our most cherished values. So it's not even about the other person. It's being sovereign. It's not letting someone hijack us to the point that we let go of the thing that matters most to us. And so the practice is not controlling ourselves. It's liberating ourselves. It's noticing, do I even know what this person's talking about? Oh, what's an example? Because in the example, that childlike curiosity is being satisfied. In the labeling them as toxic, we're, we're, we're matching their uh, soothing mechanism outside of our values. And this is what really harms leaders of companies is that we do this. I've done it. You know, my number one value is never act in a way that makes a person feel small. That is my number one value. I have done it. I have done it when I'm hijacked in response to someone else's temporary soothing mechanism. So let me just summarize that. There are people inside organizations that only get together when one of them is dipped and they're calling it character. When all it is, they only know each other's soothing mechanisms. They don't know outside of that because they're, we're not being curious in those moments. Mm -hmm. We're just labeling people or distancing ourselves. So let's take it into like a, a personal example because I feel yeah. like this is really like, so anybody that's listening to this that's in a relationship or has kids or has friends or, you know, has humans that you spend time with, which I would assume would be most people. It's like, you, you probably heard that comment of like, oh, you always do this or like you never do this or what that might be. I would, I would kind of classify that as like one of those broad sweeping statements. So you would encourage people to leverage that as an opportunity to force them to get more specific and then, and then go from there. Or what, how would you, how would you handle that from the personal perspective? I think that I'd drive with force because I think okay. in a partnership, you know, that, see, even that, I think it's first to notice, you know, empathy is a feeling, not a strategy. And when someone says to me, you always do that, I can show them the three times I didn't. But that's like collecting money on a debt collection call. Is that really what I want? What do I really want? What is the out? How do I stay loyal to the outcome I want? What is it I really want? If I want a loving partnership with this person, maybe it's a moment for me to be like, ugh, I, you know, I did that, I did that just now. Maybe I don't need to fight with the always never statement. Let that freaking go. That's like wordsmithing to be like, I let you down. I did not pick up the milk. You told me to, you reminded me. And I, I'm going to go run and get it right now, which means you're going to have to greet our guests. And that sucks. You know, just sometimes it's what's the outcome I really want to have a great dinner. If that's the outcome I really want, do I really need to wordsmith them? I that's know the huge. example they're talking about. I know the one they're talking about. And they're right. I did do it this time. 
But we our soothing mechanisms are we want this is all control. I gotta control this dialogue. And that's that that's not communication. That's confrontation. It's not communication. It's faux communication. Mm. That's super powerful. And I can give like, a, go ahead. I was just gonna say that's that's a huge takeaway for me is like when someone may say something that's triggering your initial reaction might be to defend yourself it's probably like an ego play right like you want to make sure that you're (laughs) but like asking yourself the question like hey what's the outcome here making sure that you're clear on what the outcome is because it's like i'm just thinking in my situation like if leah were to say something to me and you know it's like an always statement which i'm not saying that she does this obviously we all we everyone kind of does this at some way shape or form but like if this were to if this were to happen you know it's like i could choose to say, Hey, like, let's let me point a point B point C here's three times I didn't do it. Or I could ask myself, Hey, you know, our intention right now is that we're out on a date right now (laughs) and like, let's have a good dinner. Right. Like it doesn't even matter. Let me just drop it. Um, and I think that's super, super powerful. You had an example before I interrupted you. I'm sorry. Yeah, I had a couple of examples. You know, I, I, I raising my son's now 17 and I learned so much from him. Um, just seeing a child, before the system tells them to be transactional in their life. And so many times he would have a feeling and I wanted to correct the feeling instead of just feeling the freaking feeling. So he threw a bottle of water down and said, I hate school. And my whole body wanted to send, send him to his room for being violent but instead, I've trained my body to feel what, you know, empathy first, like, uh, and I looked at him and it wasn't a, tra- it was like, I hated school in fifth grade too. Mr. Radovich made me feel small. I hated that. Why do you hate school? And he said, a substitute teacher put her hand over my mouth today. Mm-hmm. If I had sent my kid to his room, I'm teaching him, do not come to me when the world is too big for you. Don't come to me. I can't handle it. And in our closest relationships, we do that to each other, to our partners. They are coming, they are, they are unvarnished, upset and enraged. And instead of being like, say more, what's up? Talk to me. It's like we want, we're, we're, we're wanting to control the situation by being right when right doesn't give us the outcome we really want at home. So, and later, if, if, if Leah, who doesn't do this, we know she doesn't do this. You do this. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. If, if I'll you take the really <laughs> want to say to Leah or to, you know, Mike, you know, hey, I want to just talk to you about when we're arguing, um, something I'm working on is not getting hijacked by the always never statements. I don't know if you know that you do this and I get really get my hackles up and I'm trying to work on not saying it. Would love if you could work on and not reacting to it. Would love if you could work on not saying it. Can we like play with that? You know, make it playful when we're not in a fight and then have do overs, man. Like the power of the do over in an argument, be like, oh, can I have a do over? I just mm-hmm. did always never. Like we could make this so much more fun instead of controlling each other. Mm, do over. I like that. That's, that's kind of, that's fun. Uh, we, we love watching how I met your mother. It kind of reminds me of Lily and Marshall have this thing when they have an argument that can pause, pause. (laughs) It's like, you can have like those, those fun things that you can add inside of it. There was something, there was something you said too, about that example of your son coming in and throwing the bottle on the floor and just allowing them to sit in the feeling, I think this kind of goes back to your just get over it society, right? Like, like standard is just like, you know, okay, you know, go to your room, just get over it, opposed to like saying an empathetic statement, which you just did, and then allowing you to feel that. I think it's okay. It's one thing to also say it for someone else, but it's another thing to allow yourself to feel that feeling too, right? Being kind of like self-coaching and be like, okay, I'm just going to like allow myself to feel this as well. And I think that that's just like... um another permission level that I also have to give myself is like, instead of trying to suppress whatever the emotion is uh, to sit in it as well. (laughs) Well, and I I do want to say, Brandon, that um, the reason why so many of your guests, I watch some of the things that some of your guests say is that you're really good at empathy. Like empathy is a feeling is natural to you. It's part of what you do. It's why you research people. The challenge is we're all being taught to do empath- do an empathy statement, do empathy as a strategy. 
that doesn't work. We have to feel it first. And the one thing at the collection and business, we learned that if we got calmer and slower, that doesn't make anybody feel that the calmer and slower isn't the thing. If we match or exceed their concern for the problem, not calm it down, be like, oh, I hate when I do that too. I forgot the freaking milk. Like the other person now, people have a basic need to feel understood. And we often aren't optimizing for that in a conversation. We're like, well, I was late. Well, I work really hard. Well, I blah, 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 blah. It, it really is a practice of empathy as a feeling. Mm-hmm. So oh, let's let's go here for just a little bit. And then I want to be respectful of your time. And we could we could probably talk about this stuff for days. But you, you just talking about like matching somebody else's like emotional state. Right. And, and like, I, this is something that I thought was really powerful inside of your book. You talk about like, if someone's not listening, it's actually your problem. It's not theirs. First of all, that's like a really yeah. empower. That's a really empowering way of putting it on. Cause otherwise you can, you can blame someone else or you can take responsibility for it. But the thing that you just said that reminded me of something else you talked about is like the key to influence is actually studying the other person and like understanding their situation. So I would love for you to maybe share about that a little bit that, that influence isn't some strategy. It's actually like contextualizing and understanding where the other person is. Yeah. So um, matching or exceeding their concern for the problem means that we heard them. Um, The key to communication influence, whatever we want to call it, is my physiology, am I open? And your physiology, are you open? And am I able to talk the way you listen and commit without being fake? And so what we often tell people, if you really want to influence for commitment, get out of your head and watch people. Notice what makes them listen. Do more of that. Notice what makes them check out. Don't do that. It's a pretty simple formula. And uh, CEOs and parents often say to me, I'm really great with this set of people, but this person, I just can't reach them. And it's probably because they're your best partner. They're the kid that um, is different than you. And we have to learn to translate into the way they listen rather than getting louder and slower like an American in France. Like, (laughs) you know, translate. And it's so much easier than we make it if we spend more time out of our head. Oh, super, super powerful. I think it's also funny to think about it like a Google Translate, right? Like, okay, like what language are we speaking right now? Let me understand that we're speaking a different language and I have to (laughs) making sure that I'm tailoring that. That's super powerful. Can I circle an example back? Yes, please. Example back. So, you know, the CEO that says, take it offline. They get all frustrated. Take it offline. Let's take that offline. And everyone knows in the room can see that that person was in ideation mode that they're frustrated and then everybody takes it offline, has the meeting after the meeting, commitment goes down, the CEO's frustrated. Um, and how many times is that team suffering in that? They keep making peanut butter and jelly sandwich the same damn way. What they need to do is do something a little bit different. And there's like, I have hundreds of these that they could try. They could say, that is an incredible idea, Brandon. Love that it's going to give us these three things. That's powerful. Do you have five minutes for questions so we make sure we execute the way you want us to? Now that person is more open. Should the team have to do that? No. But if they don't do it, they're not getting what they really want. So we have to be better at not expecting people to be different than who they are to game it, to figure out how to. And I can give it an example where I was the bad person in the story. Do you want to hear that? Sure. (laughs) So I had a team member who was very processed, who would put meetings in my calendar to plan these events. Freaking hate planning. So I would cancel (laughs) them all the time or it was really hard. She started doing this thing where she would walk by my office, knock on the door and say, hey, I have an idea. Do you have five minutes? And I jump up, go to the whiteboard and we were freaking planning. But I didn't know that. It felt like ideating. She told a whole room full of people this strategy when I was in the room. And I'm like, bitch, but brilliant. Like she'd been gaming me and it still worked. She was getting what she wanted and I was getting what I needed, which was dopamine and ideation. Mm. So a lot of people feel like that's manipulative. It's strategic. If you have to work with someone, we have to figure out how to bring out their best. She was bringing out my best by just switching it up a little bit. I love that. And it still worked. It still worked even when I knew. 
It still worked. And I'd be like, damn it. I'd be at the dry race board. Damn it. Totally worked. It's just speaking. It's like the five love languages, right? Gary Chapman. It's like, <laughs> what is the, what is their communication <laughs> method? That makes so much sense. Um, you had said something about not expecting someone to be different than, than who they are uh, and kind of like yeah. leaning into and leveraging that. So I want to kind of conclude on uh, a really cool thing that you had said the, the first time we met and when we connected, you had shared a really powerful insight for me that I, that I took note of. And I just, I, it resonated with me so deeply. You had mentioned your son before. So, um, you, you had shed this when you and I were talking, it was on the topic of parenting and you had said something along the lines of the most powerful lesson that you learned as a parent was not, not crafting him. It was your job to discover him. Uh, and so I know this is maybe kind of like, seemed like a, a left turn, but I thought this was super powerful. I'd love for you to share that a little bit as well for those that are parents listening right now. <laughs> Yeah, now that he said, and this is the same as true um, when I think of all the mistakes that I've made in business, and I made a lot of them. I made so many mistakes with people and with, you know, having a dipped afference, dipped AQ, and soothing it in ways that mess with what I really want. And the thing I'm most proud of as a parent is very early on, I made the decision that it was not my job to craft him, it was to discover him and to really, really be curious and listen and feel and show him the real my real feelings and not act like I was some distant coach. And the same is true with uh, people we work with. We spend so much time crafting each other when often we are criticizing the genius right out of a person. We think we know best and we don't. And so I do think um, your generation will be better at this than we are. I do think that fake was a strategy for my generation for so long that it's hard for us to unwind it where I, your generation is really pushing for more real um, and discovering people. Uh, the person least like us has the most to teach us. Mm -hmm. I think that's just a really fun way to approach life that like whoever's in front of you, it's your job to discover more of them uh, and, and and leverage their unique gifts to not only show them that external perspective that they may not be seeing, but like be kind when there's that conflict, uh, because like you said, they're probably our, our greatest partners. So Christina, our, our time is flown. And so I want to be respectful. I know you got another meeting. So the last question I love asking guests when I get a chance is what does happiness mean to you today? So what is your, what is your definition of what happiness means for you? Oh, man, what does happiness mean for me today? I just comfort is a sign that something's going right. So happiness for me is we live in a society right now that is more willing to confront reality so we can improve it. And as hard as the headlines are to read and as hard as it is to be in meetings where people are flipping the table over and saying no. And I, the happiness to me is that it's, it's confronting reality so we can all thrive and live better lives and finally fix things. So and beautiful. cooking dinner for my son. That's mm -hmm. happiness because he goes to college next year. So cooking dinner for my son is the happiness right now. <laughs> that is so beautiful. I love that. And don't want to add anything to that besides asking where can people find out about all the incredible stuff that you have going on. And I just want to say also, I read your book Suede and you got another book coming out. So maybe share a little bit about all that other stuff uh, that you have in the pipeline and all the ways that you're impacting people. Yeah, you know, I, I'm not really great at social media, but you can find me on christinaharvich.com. A, a dear friend of mine just put up a website around that. And then LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, all the things. Love that. And awesome. an allegory, allegory Inc. will have a new site with blogs on it soon. If okay. People so want to read stuff. ChristinaHarbridge.com or Allegory Inc. That is so Inc. awesome. Yeah. Oh, Inc.com. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Awesome. That'll be linked up in the show notes. And I'm just going to really quickly have a conversation with you listening. And I just want to say you could be anywhere else. You could be listening to any other podcast, but there was something about today's 
episode with Christina, whether it was the title or the description or something caught your attention and you've been hanging out with us for this entire time, which means you have learned something that has the potential to either change your life or somebody else's life. My life has absolutely, absolutely been transformed by podcasts, which is why I'm so grateful to contribute to this space. But whether it was hearing just the early stories that we shared about her, Christina's inspiration of starting a debt collection agency by being nice and weathering the entrepreneurial storm of even getting sued for being nice and staying true to her values, whether that was inspirational for you, or maybe you picked up a very specific uh, thing that you can actually apply, like maybe translating anger and frustration into noticing that it's a sign of your genius. There is something in here that can absolutely transform someone's life if you take the chance, if you take the time to either apply it yourself or if you share it with someone else. So whether or not you share this with someone or not, I'm so grateful for you listening. And Christina, I know I took you to the very, very end. I know you have a meeting to get to, so I apologize, but this was just such a great conversation. I appreciate you so much and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks.